Hello, and welcome to The Lee Show. I am here with my guest, Ethan Penner. Ethan is uh, Ethan is a bit like me, but better. Ethan uh, spent many years working in finance and is now the author of an incredible book that is going to be released soon. And the book is called Greatness is a Choice. It is... I guess you could call it a self-help book. Is that a, yeah, you can. It's one of the hardest things is when people ask me, what category does your book fit into? And I feel like I cringe at every option. I, I don't know that there's a good option. I feel like, um, I guess so. I mean, I guess, you know, my book is really aimed at sharing my experiences and observations from my life about the world and how the world works and how people are driven and, I think it's meant to be entertaining and and mostly provocative. I, I think that uh, I want I want to inspire people to consider different ways of thinking. And I think that's you know I don't know. I think Lee, that's been my thing in my life. Like I've been an outsider who just seems to see the world tilted a little differently than the average person. And this book is my I don't know my contribution to people to like inspire them to consider different things. Can we call it a self-help book? Can we, can we agree to call it a self-help I book? Will, a motivational book? I don't know. How about, um, an inspirational book? An inspirational book. Okay. Why do you think you see the world differently? Like what, what gives you that insight where you say, I have this wisdom that I want to, share there's a certain if we're being real there's like a certain arrogance that is involved in saying like i see the world differently and i have this insight and it may be totally right but like what what gives you that i mean it's an incredibly good question that i actually haven't been asked before but i love the question uh and it's something that i contemplated i i, I had a um a pretty meteoric wall street career and when i kind of left wall street when i was about 40 or a little younger, there were a number of people who came to me saying, I want to write your book. And I cringed at that. Write your book meaning like write a memoir? Yeah, my, write my life story when I was about 38 or 39 years old because I did have kind of an amazing run on Wall Street. Oh, I mean, unique, I would say. But I felt I had not, you know, at 38 years old, it was, I felt gross for me to tell anything to anyone, you know, and, uh, so you asked the question that has been on my mind actually for quite a long time. I'll, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First, to explain how I got to writing the book, because it kind of I slipped into writing the book. I didn't sit down and say, oh, I have a lot to share. I'm going to share it with the world. What happened really was um, I had always had in my head, Lee, the idea that every father should be kind of writing down their experiences and their insights gained in their life as a legacy to hand to their children that could ultimately be passed on to grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I know that if I had that in my hands from my parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, it would be my dearest treasure. Isn't there that book that's like stuff that rich dads teach their kids that poor dads don't or something? You know what I'm Yeah, talking? yeah. There's that book by some Hawaiian guy. Rich dad, poor dad. Something like that. But there's also this, like, I guess I, I'm imagining, like, the, the, the kind of trope from the movie where there's, like, the dad who thinks he's going to die. And then he's, like, starts recording videos of, like, stuff that he wants his kid to watch in, like, 10 years. And he's like, but it's not that. No, no. I, I'd always had it. So I'd always had in the back of my mind this idea that if I, Ethan Penner, had something from my great, great grandparents, great father. I would treasure that. It would be like something that I would really hold near and dear to my life. And I figured, why don't I create that one day for my descendants? And so it was in my mind for a while. And then one day, um, it was about December, mid-December of 2020. I was at the breakfast table. It was COVID year. And my daughter, who was 17 and a high school senior during COVID at that time, we were having breakfast. And she said to me, what are you going to buy um, my uncle and his family who are coming for Christmas in 10 days. And I, I recoiled from that question because I like giving gifts to little kids, you know, and they're all excited to 
as I was when I was a little kid to open up gifts, but to give a sweater to my brother-in-law seemed, you know, like those are the kinds of things I cringe at too. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to write a damn book and I'm going to give them the book because most of the people coming were adults or grown children. And she laughed and said, well, you know, there's 10 days before Christmas. When are you going to write the book? And I said, literally right now, right after breakfast. So the first draft of what is this book was written in about four hours at the breakfast nook in response to that provocation from my daughter. And because I had in my head and in my notes on my phone, because I was an inveterate note taker, all these ideas that I had kind of hopping around in my brain about things I've experienced and observations I've had and lessons I've learned. So I wrote that first book. I called it What I Know, because it was just what I know. I put my picture on a cover, went to the printer who would only print, I wanted 10 copies, but he would only print a minimum of 100. So I had 90 extra copies and I just started giving them out to like friends and then friends of friends and people I would meet in business. And the feedback I got was really, really cool, really cool. Um, and inspired me to think about that maybe I have something here that's worth investing some time in to create something marketable to the broader audience, not just my family. Are you trying to make money off of it? Or are you just trying to share wisdom here? Like, is the hope that you become like Dale Carnegie? Or is the hope that this is just, I've got something and I think it can better the world? Or somewhere in between, maybe. Well, I'm not aiming at this to kind of make money to kind of change my life, if that's what you're asking. I'm not doing this to be known or famous at all. Um, in fact, I had that flirtation with fame in the 90s on Wall Street, got it out of my system and, uh, and realized, you know, that's not what I'm aiming for out of my life. Um, but it's just something that I feel, look, I feel like I have a contribution to make and we all do. And I, I, I don't shy away from it, you know, and I think that the world is in a very as we i think we all know the world's in a very tenuous place today and and the fabric of america has changed so much since my childhood and a lot of the observations that i share in the book are reflections about that change let's talk quickly about your wall street career um you are you you i think describe yourself as having created the cmbs market right which well, I, you know, in fairness, other people seem to think so too, but yes. I think you did that, right? Yes. Okay, yes. so we can, we can credibly say that. Okay, so for our listeners who may not know, CMBS is commercial mortgage-backed securities. So that is, the concept is that you're, you're taking a bunch of mortgages, packing, packaging them together, and then selling them off in tranches. And, as bonds. As bonds, right. Right. And you created the idea and then created that market. No. No, I didn't create the idea, Lee. So the the idea of taking things like mortgages and kind of, as you say, packaging them through a legal structure and then having the issuance of bonds backed by those mortgages, I would credit um, Lou Ranieri at Solomon Brothers and his team. There was a guy, actually, there was another guy named Jim Dahl who- He got famous from uh, Liar's Poker yeah, as well, so, right? Michael Lewis talked about Right. Him. Well, Michael Lewis was an intern or a kind of a sales trainee there at the time and wrote that first book, which was an amazing book and a great insight to what Wall Street was like on the trading floors, which I worked at back then. So I was at Drexel when uh, Lou Ranieri had created that market uh, at Solomon Brothers and as you know, how Wall Street works, the big firms all copy each other. So, you know, we all were in the business at the same time. And my job at Drexel was to trade or make markets in kind of non-agency guaranteed mortgage products. And so I was a credit person from day one in my career and structured finance was being built. And I was one of the people influencing how structured finance was built. I was hired away after a couple of years at Drexel to build that business from scratch at Morgan Stanley. And so by the time I was 29 or 30, I was a, kind of at the top of the heap on Wall Street of structured finance. And at that time, there was this incredible dislocation in commercial real estate when all lenders literally moved away from the market all at once and you could not get a loan. And the industry is financed with ballooning mortgages. So about 
20% of all mortgages come due and need to be refinanced every year. And there was literally no lenders. So it seemed obvious to me that structured finance and mortgage-backed securities technology applied to commercial real estate would be the answer. And bringing bond market money to fund real estate and fill that gap that had been created was was going to be a very rewarding thing to do. For some reason, nobody else from my world saw that or believed it was possible. And I think it was because they all believed that securitization was built well for homogeneous assets like home mortgages or credit cards, and that the heterogeneity of commercial real estate was a barrier to securitization working for it. And I guess that is something I talk about in the book a lot, herd thinking. And you asked me, what do you have to offer that makes you unique? And I would say, I'm a natural contrarian. I'm not in the herd. I mean, a lot of great Wall Street legends, I think you would find that as like a common thread is a willingness to go against the the con- conventional wisdom. Right. And look, like when that. I when I did that, Lee, you know, the con- the common refrain was he's going to blow up. If if it was a good idea, others would have done it already. Like, why do you think you could do it? I mean, if it was doable, others would have done it. And I think that that is what reinforces herd thinking. And I, I guess, let me go back to your original question, because this is a good time to do that, is like, why did I feel like I have something to offer unique? And how do I see myself that way? Well, it goes back to my childhood. So my parents were divorced. My father was a rabbi. My father moved to San Diego. We, we were living at the Bronx, in the Bronx in New York at the time. And my dad and I were, my dad was not a very good family man. He was not, uh, to make a long story short, he was not a great husband to my mom and he was not a great father to me and my brother. And we were never, we were disconnected the whole like 10 years, oh, whatever. Living still or no? no, he passed a long time ago. So he moved to San Diego after my mom divorced him and moved in with his long-term girlfriend and got married right away. And so that was my dad. My dad was that guy who was like, the world thought he was great because he was an amazingly brilliant and charismatic speaker and a brilliant scholar. And I would go to synagogue with him when I visited him in San Diego as an eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kid. And every weekend that I would be there on Friday nights and Saturday night, Saturdays after service, I'd have literally hundreds of people coming up to me and saying to me the same thing. You are the luckiest person to have this man as your father. How lucky you are. And I would think, my God, you know, like I had to bite my lip because I knew the truth was very different, but I didn't want to embarrass my dad in his place of work. But I learned two very important lessons through that experience. One is that if there's a consensus, it's probably wrong, okay? And the other is to not, to question and even disrespect authority, right? Your father is the ultimate authority figure. So I have no problem when the government issues proclamations thinking there's some hidden agenda and it's wrong. You know, like I always start from the opposite side. And I, I really credit and thank my father for ingraining in my DNA from a very young age, this contrarian way of thinking, and it has served me very, very well. Can we talk about charisma for a second? Because you mentioned that word, and I find that to be a fascinating concept. And, you know, there's a um, there's an author named Carl Oven Nausgaard who wrote uh, six-volume memoirs that he called My Struggle. It's an incredible book. Or series of books and otherwise known as Mein Kampf. Yes, otherwise known as Mein Kampf. And in fact, when he published it, he's he's Norwegian and Swedish. And when he published it, there was a lot of uproar that he called it Mein Kampf. I don't know if you read the book, but it, it was no, a, I have not read the book. A marvelous. Um, and uh, when he in in the book, he says that he thinks there are two attributes that are distributed no matter how much you try to equalize society there are two attributes that are distributed unequally one is beauty and one is charisma and that no matter how equal you make people there are going to be some that are more beautiful than others and some that are more charismatic than others and i'm fascinated by this concept of charisma because i don't i don't know that you can teach it or if you if you can teach it i think it it seems to me like it's something that 
is is taught by i don't know like if you fuck up your kids enough then they'll become charismatic or something like that like i what 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 do you think what tell me about charisma from your point of view what do you think creates charisma do you think of yourself as charismatic is it something you can teach like i want to understand and explore that concept you touched on two to- topics one is charisma and the other is equality right and so i want to talk about both because in my book i cover it and it's interesting you said you know this individual wrote a book about this topic i like to th- you know i think one of the things i'm proudest of my book is the brevity of the book right so i i have a chapter i have 69 chapters and each one could have been a book but each one is one to three pages because I believe in brevity as a sign of respect for people in a, t- in, a in a world where people are pressed for time. Right. There's that saying like, uh, "Sorry, I didn't. Uh, sorry, I didn't write you a, a short letter. Or sorry, I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one." Isn't that the saying? I think yeah. that's right. And yeah. so I feel proud that my book is a book for the times in the sense that it's respectful of people's time. Now, uh, so let's get to your two things. Charisma. It's a fascinating, as you suggest, fascinating topic. I believe that charisma and beauty, both, which you mentioned both, um, to a very large extent, are available to everybody. You know, I think we have this kind of idea that people are born with certain gifts like charisma and beauty. Well, I don't necessarily buy into that. I think that people are born, the gifts that lead to that, I think to a very large extent are good teaching by parents. And again, if you would ask me, what do I think my book's going to do? I hope my book helps guide people down the right path perhaps and sharing some of the things I've learned from my parents and my teachers. And one of them is that I think if you have self-esteem, true self-esteem, and you bring your unique self uh, proudly to the world, it doesn't matter. Every person's beautiful and every person's charismatic slash attractive. You know, I really believe that. Now, some people maybe have a little bit broader magnetism than others, but I think what keeps people from being beautiful and charismatic is their insecurities and their lack of true self-esteem. And, and that's why I made self-esteem the concept of that my first chapter in my book, because I think it's, it's the key to everything in life. Let's put beauty aside for a second, because I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by charisma. Do you think it's something that can be taught? Like, could you make a charisma class in school? And I'm being a little cheeky, but like, I do, I do think I could. Yeah, I think so. And can you teach self-esteem? Well, my book aims really at the heart of, of instructing people both what self-esteem is as opposed to external esteem that we, that so many of us spend so much time chasing both through power at work, how many people report to you and what's your title and, you know, how much money you have and what clothing you wear or house you live in or car you drive. All these things are kind of calibrated to gaining esteem, but it's not esteem that actually is valuable. It's external esteem. If we think about charisma, like the root of the word, I guess, is the same as the root of charm, right? And, you know, I I took a a stand-up comedy class earlier this year. And I did a handful of performances, um, hopefully more to come in the future. It was a lot of fun. And one of the the things I've thought about is so many comedians, if you ask them what makes them funny, they say, my parents screwed me up. My parents were drunks. A huge number of comedians are either active or recovering alcoholics. They all have emotional problems. In, including yours truly, and um, so I'm. It seems like trauma creates this funniness, and I think a lot of them might say that trauma somehow can either destroy your self esteem, or it can make you charismatic, or or both somehow simultaneously. It's just interesting to me that you talked about. Well, my father wasn't a great father, and he wasn't a great husband. And he was really charismatic and that helped make me who I am and give me this wisdom. Like I, I see a fascinating thread there. Yeah. And pattern that, that. Well, I I think that you're not wrong. It it makes, it makes logical sense. 
that challenges and fighting to overcome challenges is a way to gain legitimate self-esteem, right? You know, like you go home at night and you go like, okay, I started with nothing, which literally I did. Like, I mean, my, my mother raised me with, I don't know, she had a hundred dollars of savings, you know what I mean? And we grew up in a tiny apartment, my brother and I with my mom, and there was no social, there was no safety net for us, zero. And I think that that imbued me with a sense of purpose, a sense of responsibility, and made me, I didn't have a choice to bring it hard. You know, if I didn't bring it hard, I knew that there was no one to turn to for food at night or anything, right? And so I'm, I think my legitimate self-esteem is born from, from having met serious challenges at a young age and being proud of how I've handled myself in meeting them. Talk, you mentioned that your father was a rabbi. Can we talk about your religious practice a bit? And, and I'll share something. So, you know, I, I went through a, a horrible and traumatic experience professionally about, I don't know, five years ago. It was it was a, a terrible thing and it and it lasted for a very long time. It was a really horrible experience. And that experience in a in a way made me more religious. And I think I started going to synagogue a lot more frequently. And the more I went, the more I enjoyed it. The more I engaged with the community of my synagogue, the more it meant to me. I grew up going to the same synagogue. It's a conservative synagogue called Park Avenue Synagogue. It's it's a block away from where I live. And it's um when I was growing up, it was a thing I had to do. I had to go to Hebrew school. I had to go to synagogue. I hated it. It was an obligation. It was it didn't mean anything to me. You know, on on Pesach they have the the the, the four sons is like the typical story on Passover. And there's the wicked son who says, What does any of this mean to me? And I always sort of felt that way. Like, what does this mean? This is nothing. This is just a thing I have to do, but it didn't have meaning or significance to me. It was like I was memorizing Hebrew, and mem- but it, it was boring. And, and I had Mrs. Finkel was my Hebrew school teacher. And every class I would get bored and I'd be picking my nose and then she would interrupt class and she would look at me and she'd go, Deary, do you need a tissue? And then of course, like everyone would look at me and I'd have my finger buried in my nose and it was just a terrible talk about trauma. And so I viewed going to synagogue as an obligation. It was not something I enjoyed. And then when I went through this experience, I started to go to synagogue more. And I started to like it. And the more I went, the more I liked it. My Jewish observance, and here we are between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, my Jewish observance, like I don't keep kosher. We sort of do, but I only sort of keep kosher and and not really. And I follow some rules and not others, but I'm fascinated by others and trying to understand their religious observance. So I'd love to understand what does that mean to you? How are you praying a lot? Are you praying infrequently? I mean, you mentioned prayer in your book. Talk about that if you could. Well, it means a lot to me. And I would tell you, Lee, that without a connection to religion and spirituality and prayer, daily prayer, because I pray every day, I was never going to be able to write this book. This book is a reflection of the fact that I found, like you, uh, kind of stumbled later in life upon meaning in my religion and my religious practice. So I grew up the son of a rabbi. I was fluent in Hebrew. I went to yeshiva, which is a parochial school where you basically spent half the day learning in, in Hebrew and Jewish studies and half the day learning what everyone else learns. So it means that your day is twice as pretty much twice as long as everybody else, which by the time I got to ninth grade, I was done with that, right? And like you, and like probably most people who were introduced to any religion, Judaism or any other religion, I could speak authoritatively though about Judaism, it was never introduced in a way that was appealing or where there was a value proposition. It was just shoved down your throat as some obligation, like this is what you do. It's And if you asked, it was because of some 
obligation to your heritage and your lineage that, well, your great grandparents did it and you did it and, and I did it and you're going to do it too, as though it's some punishment that goes with being Jewish, right? And you would sit there in synagogue going, I'd rather be anywhere but here, or even as you say in school, and you go, why am I learning all this stuff? What does it all mean? Well, I actually would tell you, I had a couple of, I, I had a great Jewish education. I went to this yeshiva called Westchester Day School, and I was around the smartest. My peer group there in seventh and eighth grade was the most intelligent, challenging peer group I've ever been in my life. And, you know, a lot of, I, I would say that I find myself thinking I'm the smartest guy in the room or amongst them in many rooms. And in, in uh, my mother went to Westchester Day School, my uncle, my aunt, everybody in our family went to Westchester Day School. And I went to summer camp there. It was called Westchester Summer Day. I went there too for summer camp. Um, yeah, when I when I was second, third, and fourth grade, I think I went there. So I was privileged to go there on scholarship because we had no money, but because my father was a, a well known rabbi, I got you know a financial aid scholarship to go there. So I, it was a pretty affluent place, and no one was there as poor as me. But it was I was around extreme intelligence and challenged. And for example, we learned the Talmud and I in Aramaic, so I had to be pretty conversant in Aramaic, which nobody is, at seventh and eighth grade and fluent in Hebrew. So my brain was really stretched through my Jewish education, but their Judaism and religion and prayer were never explained to me in a, in a way that would make it appealing. It was more ob obligatory. And so fast forward, I, I like most religious people, I abandoned you know religion completely uh, shortly after ninth grade. And uh, you know, it, the spiritual part of it was always in, in kind of informed how I behaved as a human being, you know, knowing the Ten Commandments and knowing the Golden Rule and all that stuff made sense to me. But the practice of it made no sense to me. And in fact, I thought, you know, my relationship with God is personal. What do I need to read a prayer book of someone else's words when I want to communicate with God? I'll communicate on my own terms. So I even thought the idea of a prayer book was silly. And then one day I went to synagogue for the bar mitzvah of a friend's son about maybe six years ago, five or six years ago. And I had what I think Christians call a born again experience where the, the words literally leaped off the pages at me from the Siddur, the prayer book. And it was as though as God, God was literally talking to me. Like I was reading the words and it was literally as though I was hearing God communicating to me personally. And I came back and, you know, recounted that to my wife who had not gone to the bar mitzvah. And she said, well, you know, you're a rabbi's son. I've been telling you your whole, since I've known you, you should be praying every day is what you're meant to do. So I took her up on it and I, uh, and I started praying every day. You put on tefillin? I do, you, you know, you put on tefillin every, day. every day I travel with it and I, and I curated, I would say, so in the morning prayers, uh, there's a lot of prayers that I decided I would not say because they were kind of repetitive telling God how great he was. And I decided God must already know how great he is. So he doesn't need to hear that from me over and over and over again. So I kind of curated from the prayer book, the prayers that I felt really resonated with me. And I say those prayers every single day and it's changed me. I, as, it changed me as a human being. And I realized that when we pray, we're not praying to God, right? God, if, if there is a God, the last thing he needs is my prayers, right? He, he doesn't, he's way beyond that, right? He doesn't need me to tell him he, he's great or that I'm appreciative. He doesn't care, right? But I'm praying for me, you know? And that's when I, it was a big aha moment when I realized that these prayers are intended to create a certain state of mind that will enable me to go out into this world every morning with a different mindset that will bring a better day, a more rewarding journey for me in my life. And so the prayers serve me. They make my life better. And then I realized that's the only way religion makes sense or anything. It's like if it doesn't make your life better, then it doesn't belong in your life, right? And so if there's a God and this kind of service of God or this religious practice is supposed to be valuable to your life, it's because it makes your life better by doing it and by adhering to it. And so I've discovered through that aha moment, this um, kind of state of gratitude and awareness that 
the morning prayer ritual has. And, and I'll tell you a funny story. You mentioned arrogant. Like, do you, you know, is it a little arrogant for you to write this book, right? And, if, and I would say um, in my youthful arrogance, when I thought about the prayer book I would, or the prayers, I would say, well, I mean, why am I going to read what some rabbi wrote? You know, has no application to me personally. And I'm as smart as any of these guys. Like, I've got words too. And then I, re- I reflected as you get older, you realize how stupid you were when you were young and arrogant. And I thought, well, you know, even if I was as smart as any of the rabbis who collectively wrote that prayer book, I'm definitely not smarter than all of them combined. You know what I mean? And there's something to be said about collective wisdom that is kind of multi-generational. And that's what we in Judaism have the benefit of. We've got a lot of really smart people who have worked hard together and debated a lot together to give us what the product we're now using is. And it's a tool. It's a tool to make our life better. And I think that it's not just Jewish. I mean, Christian belief, which is obviously, you know, a derivative or related to Judaism, I'm sure there's the same beauty there and and probably in Islam and and all the major religions. I'm not that familiar with all of them, but I found beauty in this religious practice and it definitely makes me a better human being and brings me a better journey every day. I know lots of Jewish people who go to synagogue every week. I don't know any Christian people who go to church every week. Like I see churches all over Manhattan. Yeah. I don't know anyone who goes to, I've never met someone who's like, oh yes, it's Sunday. We're going to church. I don't know. I'm sure people do like they, they can't just be empty all the time. There's some beautiful buildings, but I'm, I'm always fascinated to think about like, I, I don't know a single person who goes to church. So my, da- my daughter goes to college at SMU in Dallas. And I will, t- I, I, will, I will tell you that um, Dallas is filled the churches in Dallas on Sunday are jam packed. Well, I, I, I don't doubt. Dallas I don't know about New York. I don't know about New York. You walk around Manhattan. There, I mean, there's a church on every other block, and they're huge. And there's one literally across the street from here. I've never seen someone walk in or out of that building. Yeah. Well, I think look different places. I, I happen to love Dallas, and part of the reason I love Dallas is because there's a gigantic commitment to traditional religious values there, and I feel I I, I go to church with friends there. Because I feel good there. I feel good amongst their company. I think that uh, this whole kind of, I think that our society and the world in general has walked away over our lifetime. You know, I was born in the early 60s and I grew up in a religious country. You know, this country was shut down on Sundays. It was a Christian religious country. And even though I was a Jewish person, I kind of felt that's pretty cool, you know, that that everyone stops on Sunday and they don't go to work and they don't go shopping and they're with their families and and whatever it is, they watch football too, but at least they're with their families, right? And now Sundays is just like a Wednesday. It doesn't, you know, everyone's shopping or everyone's doing stuff. And I think we lost so much in the world and especially in America in this walking away from religious values um, so much. And I think if you ask me like one of the things that I hope my book is a bit of a reminder of some of those things for people and maybe a, a way to show that those values are beautiful, you know, and that they have value, that they're not something to be adhered to because of some obligation. They actually make your life better and they make everyone's life around you better. So I did, I started doing this thing. I probably shouldn't admit this out loud, but um, when we go to services on Friday nights for Shabbat and we go every week for Shabbat, they have a book on each pew. It's Chaim. It's the Torah. It's like the entire Torah and Haftorah. And it's sitting there. And um, I started reading it. And instead of paying attention to services and instead of paying attention to the rabbi and his sermon, and I just started reading it. And I read the entire Torah from start to finish, which I hadn't done in a really long time. And I hadn't done it as an adult. I read the whole thing in English. And I read all the commentary that's on the page with it. It's fascinating to read it as an adult and to see this is an incredible book. It's an incredible narrative. There's so many interesting things about it to to read it and absorb it and to notice the differences from portion to portion, from book to book, chapter to chapter. I mean, it, it really is a fascinating 
story. Like there's a reason why people go, whoa, this is such a great story. I'm going to like make my life all about this book that I just read. And it's, um, it's a really good one. And now I'm starting to reread it, but I'm also, I'm also fascinated by essays and commentaries about the Torah. And I think there are so many great thinkers and philosophers out there who had wonderful things to say. So I'm, I'm trying to absorb as many of those as I can. And if I'm going to admit another grave sin here, I brought a, a book of essays about the Torah to services with me on Rosh Hashanah, and I wasn't even paying attention. It was like a hardcover book, and it looked enough like the Siddur that no one would notice. And so I sat there like a like my son sits there reading Harry Potter and not really paying attention. I sat there reading a book of essays about Judaism while I was in services and supposed to be praying. But the whole supposed to be is really the repellent to religion, right? The fact that you're there, you know, you're in a house of worship and you're and you're studying Torah. I would not only not be embarrassed to say that I'd be like, wow, no one's doing it better than you. You know, like there's a, there's one of my favorite prayers in the morning. Um, and it, it goes, uh, these are the things that, uh, uh, I'm trying to translate the Hebrew to English, but these are the things for which, um, the ultimate reward will be in the, in the, in the world to come. So presumably after you die, but, the principal reward, but then there'll be a reward in this life too. And it goes on to list 10 things. And so when people ask me, what does it mean to be a Jew? Or I like to think about like, what does it mean to be a Jewish person? Well, if you ask, I know like you, thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And if I asked all of them, what does it mean to be a Jewish person? I think the large majority of them would be scratching their heads and maybe saying something like, I was born to a Jewish mother. Um, I was bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed if I was a girl. Um, I was circumcised. You know, those are the traditional answers to that question. But this paragraph that's in the morning prayer actually lays out what it means to be a Jewish person, and it's aspirational. So it's um, honor mother and father, do good deeds, uh, pray a couple times a day, um, pray with conviction or attention or focus, specifically says that, um, bring goodwill between uh, man and his fellow man, and especially between husband and wife, uh, visit the sick, dower the bride, escort the dead. It's a list of 10 things. And the final one is, and the study of Torah is the equivalent of them all. And so, so you should feel very good that when you do that, you're fulfilling the, the prayer book, so this gets back to the prayer book. So the prayers that I recite daily are mostly all excerpted from the Torah, like the Shema, for example, the central prayer of Judaism is just directly excerpted from the Torah. So I like to think that my prayers fulfill that obligation of uh, studying the Torah because I, I say Torah-derived prayers every day. One of the things that occurred to me while I read the Torah was it is a list of rules. It's a list of ethics. And Judaism, if you ask me, what does it mean to be a Jew? Judaism, I think, is a set of values and rules and guidelines for behavior. And it is a shorthand because it is challenging to come up with your own personal philosophy and ethos. It's a lot of work to think about what is my opinion and what should my personal rule be about every single moral situation I may encounter. It's hard. It's it's beyond most people. And so to have a, a shorthand, to have someone spoon feed that to you and say, here's the list, just follow this list. Don't worry about making your own list. That's a, a great shortcut. And I think that Judaism is Number one, that list, it is it is a set of values that is spoon-fed to you. Number two, I think the practice of Judaism is the idea of, it's the idea that it is very easy for us to default to bad behavior. It's easy to fall into what you might call sin, but I don't love that word, but it's easy to default to things that are unethical. And so if we can 
if we can do something every day or multiple times a day, we are less like something, something good, something to reaffirm our commitment to good ethics. We are less likely to do something unethical on any given day, right? I'm, I, so I, I'm, I'm sober 23 years. I go to AA meetings. And one of the things that uh, I've noticed about AA is like, there's this notion of just go to a meeting every day, right? That's important. Go to a meeting every single day. I don't do that, by the way, but I, I should go to a meeting every day because if, on a day you go to a meeting, you're probably not going to drink. And um, this sort of daily reminders and doing certain things every day, reading the big book or praying or speaking to a sponsor, these are all things that are making it less likely that you're going to do the bad thing on that day. And I think you can think of the practice of Judaism in the same way. If you're putting on tefillin every day, it is a constant reminder of, I am reaffirming my commitment to these ethics and to these behaviors, and I am resubscribing every day to this commitment to godly behavior or ethical behavior or good behavior so you know that 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 would be my answer to that question i agree i agree 100 percent with what you just said and there's so many examples of that in judaism so there's the prayer which is this kind of commandment to pray which i do every morning although religious Jews do it three times a day um wearing a yarmulke on your head is another great reminder. Like it's very hard you to feel it. You physically feel if, it, so it's a reminder. If you're that's the reason for it. So if you're wearing this thing on your head, this kippah or yarmulke, uh, or you're wearing tzitzit, right? Tzitzit fringes, is meant to actually be a reminder. These are reminders of your commitment to these package of ethical standards that we all need because we're tempted to go astray, as you suggest. The world does that to us, right? You go out in the world and. Um, you know, really religious um, Jewish men won't touch or shake the hand even of a woman that's not their wife because they know that the you can't have an affair, right, without touch. Touch is always the natural first step. So if I never touch another woman, I'm, I don't have to worry. You create barriers, right? Judaism is about creating barriers and reminders and to put you down the straight and narrow, not because... And this is the big thing that I would say. It's not because it's to create, um, to deprive you, right? It's to actually direct you to a fulfilling journey called life, right? Yeah, and but also, you know, there's like the concept of entropy, right? That that systems degrade, yeah. and 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 I think if you think of of what you called it going astray or whatever the term is, bad behavior or something, that's a sort of natural entropy, right? It is, and, yes. And so if you if we all default to entropy, if we all default to doing the bad thing, then we need constant reminders and work to do the good thing. It's very hard to do that. And but this naturally. is where and this is where real self esteem ultimately is gained because you are very proud of you. You wouldn't be proud of yourself if the temptation wasn't strong. You know what I mean? So that's why when when we think about um, things like evil, like why is you know if you're religion, if you question religion, you're like, well, why would God make a world with evil? Well, because temptation and evil are the ways to define good. You wouldn't know good food if there wasn't bad food, right? You need bad food in order to know what good food is. Same thing with death. Like, why is there death? Imagine a basket. I like basketball. Imagine a basketball game that had no end. What would the meaning be of any points in, you know, in any quarter? Like, well, there's no end. So the so the uh, and same thing with a, a basketball game with no refs and no enforcement of rules. Well, that would not be very much fun to watch. You would not. It would descend into a brawl, and there'd be no art of basketball anymore. So things like I, I like to look at analogies because it crystallizes the way I understand things. And basketball, something I I do like and I understand. A game without an end, or a game without the enforcement of rules, without refs, would be not interesting okay and so life needs rules needs enforcement uh that's why defund the police is also kind of like a funny thing because like i go imagine a basketball game without refs doesn't make sense and death death is necessary to actually enjoy life it's it's a gift death is a it's a weird thing but it's a gift because it allows us to focus on enjoying life 
one of the the first formative books that I read, and I've talked about this before on this show, was I read um, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I regretted, as an adult, I regretted that I read those when I was in high school because- You I can read like, them again. But it, no, it's, it's a little that, bit of a commitment. It's not, it's, not that it, it's not that I want to read them again. It's that I was like so brainwashed by them that I read them when I was- young and malleable and they like retarded my development and shaped my brain in all kinds of bad ways. And it took a lot of active work to, to undo that damage. Um, but I, I think there is something appealing about that because those books also in a sense teach a sort of philosophy and a code of ethics and help you create your own code of ethics and spoon feed it to you. It's like an alternative to a different code of ethics, but it was an interesting concept. That was like the first one that I sort of subscribed to until I tried to wipe that out of my brain and undo that damage. I think she, in those books, did a wonderful job of communicating the message of my title of my book, that greatness is a choice, right? She admired so openly in those books people who choose to be great and reviled those who not only choose to not be great, but to kind of be jealous of those who chose to be great and to try to actually actively undermine their lives. And I think she captured, look, nobody's perfect and she's not perfect and those books are not perfect. But there was some value. There was a reason why those books are. I mean, there's are, a reason why they're bestsellers for. Even though they're even though they're thousand that. page books, it's very hard to get someone to read a thousand page book. And she's gotten people to a lot of people to read two thousand page books. So there's some stuff there that's pretty important and valuable to to absorb. I mentioned that I'm a sober for 23 years now. I think alcohol is a dangerous thing because it it lowers your inhibitions. And so you're probably more likely to do those bad behaviors that we said we're talking about daily affirmations of not doing when you're drinking. Now, of course, if you do them anyways, when you're not drinking, then maybe you're just like a sociopath or something, right? Like if you're doing those things sober. Or you're just falling for temptation. Like I, re I referenced that prayer, the Shema. And there's a, a guy who I really admire uh, Dennis Prager. I don't know if you've ever listened to him talk. He has a radio show and it's syndicated. And he's got a big following. He also happens to live not far from me and he has his own little synagogue. And I don't, I'm not a big synagogue guard, but I like to go once in a while to his and he does the sermon. And he said, um, he points to uh, a phrase in there, which uh, let your, don't be led astray by your heart and your eyes. Okay. And I think that um, I think it's a very interesting thing to focus on because it acknowledges the fact that our heart and our eyes can naturally lead us astray. And the point he made when he pointed that out one day in his sermon was to contrast with the teaching that you hear often, follow your heart. You know what I mean? And he said, well, you know, a lot of death has occurred in the world, people following their heart, you know? Let's let's actually try to be uh, reasonable and thinking, and I think that's the Ayn Rand thing, is reason instead of emotion. I would subscribe to that too. I think that we all are emotional. We can't deny that we're emotional. It's part of the human condition. But what differentiates us, I think, from animals is that we have the ability to add reason into the equation and govern our emotions. And uh, And I think that this is a very important message. You mentioned, if we can rewind for a second, you mentioned that you wrote your book very quickly. There was like one morning you just felt this flash of inspiration and you wrote it quickly. Yes. Can you talk a little bit and maybe a bit over how this evolved over time? What Tyler Cowen calls your production function. Like how do you how do you do work, right? Some people say, I set aside time from nine to 12 and I write every morning. And other people say like, I'm just focused all the time. And some people it's there, everybody has a different way of producing work. Maybe it's a flash of brilliance followed by like three months of being a sloth. And every, everyone's got like a different approach to that. How do you, how do you 
manage your own production function and stay focused when you need to focus? And are there things you wish you were doing differently? And one of my chapters is entitled Life is an Improv. And I think I live life in improv. And you mentioned you took um, stand-up comedy class. Well, I like acting and I have acted. And one of my most favorite things, and I always recommend to my kids and to my students in business school and anyone is go take an improv class. It's incredible. Uh, you will discover things about yourself that uh, you'll be empowered in ways that you probably were never before. And uh, and living in improv is an incredible thing, right? And so I found my stride probably in my 30s, and I've never looked back of my stride of living in improv. And so even like when we talk, look, when I talk to anybody, you or anybody, and it could be an individual conversation or it could be a speech in front of a thousand people, I don't prepare. I'm in improv. I'm just being authentic. And I think that... Um, that's how I am work-wise too. You know, I'm just being in the moment. And that moment uh, that you referenced when I sat at the breakfast nook provoked by my daughters to, to kind of, and I said, okay, I'm going to write this book. I just got in the zone. You know, I, I, I had the opportunity to befriend Elton John back in the 90s. And he, I'll never forget, he said, he told me how he writes his songs. So Bernie Toppin, his long-term collaborator in music um, will write all the lyrics. And I, I didn't know this. And I'm, it's an incredible story. Bernie Toppin, when he decides he has lyrics that he feels is song worthy, will put them in a FedEx envelope, you know, write them or type them and ship them off to wherever Elton is. Elton will open up the FedEx envelope, read the words that Bernie wrote, and then write music and of course, edit the words a little bit to fit the tune he wrote. He said, do you know, it never takes me longer than 30 minutes to write a song from the moment I open up the FedEx packet. And I'm thinking, wow. That, that's a remarkable production function. Incredible. But it's what I think great athletes talk about and great performers, they talk about being in flow state, right? And there's been a lot of literature written about being in flow state. I kind of felt since I adopted this living in improv, I feel like I'm living in flow state a good part of the time. And uh, it's it's kind of cool, you know? It just, uh, there's a prayer, but I, I hate to seem like the crazy religious person, but there's a prayer in the morning. Because have you ever thought, Lee, like when you get an idea or even words come out of your mouth and they're smart, have you ever thought, like, where did those words come from? Or where did this idea come from? Or where do ideas come from anyway, right? Like new ideas, like you said, oh, you know, you created CMBS. And, and there was a lot that went into creating CMBS and a lot of cool new ideas and insights that I had and all of that. And I would frequently reflect in, in that period of time when I was in my early 30s, like, where are these ideas actually coming from? You know, like I'm not this smart, you know, like, or, or I'd have meetings in what I'll call flow or improv state and people would leave my office. I'd never prepare for a meeting. So I always want to be in that kind of in the moment and people would leave my office and I'd sit there by myself and reflect, wow, those were really smart words that just came out of my mouth. I wonder where they came from, you know, and there's a prayer in the morning that th that thanks God for and asks God for and thanks God for putting wisdom and knowledge in our in in us right and so I do think that there is this um, I don't know there's energy where we don't see it you know where we tend to think of our senses right our six senses as the the kind of helpers that they are help us to live in the world and feel the world and know the world I also think in equal parts. They're inhibitors because if we don't if we don't sense things according to our six senses, we discount the validity of them, right? And so this idea that there's energy that we don't see or feel or hear um, that influences us in life is generally dismissed as the talk of raving kind of madmen and madwomen. But but I, I don't know. Just because you don't see, hear, or feel it, it's got it doesn't mean it's not there. You know what I mean? And I think that this knowledge that is talked about in this prayer and that I've been able to tap into when I'm in improv state. And I think others talk about it in flow state. 
I think it's a pretty interesting concept. I have talked and written about the concept of flow state and that it's like the greatest feeling. And I know when I'm feeling it, I think it sort of ties into charisma. I think it, I've given a lot of speeches and and public speaking events and um, there are times when I'm feeling it and times when I'm not feeling it. There are times when I meet with someone one-on-one and I'm feeling it and, and sometimes I'm not. And I think for me personally, a lot of that has to do with, I'm almost like a chameleon. Like when I'm with someone who is really charismatic, they bring that out in me and then I become far more charismatic and engaging. And when I'm with someone who is uh, just a wet noodle, then I become that way. And it's harder for me, it's harder for me to summon it in a vacuum. And it's a lot easier when I'm with someone who brings that out, right? And I don't know if the term is muse, but there are people who I feel like are a muse for me and where when I'm around them, I'm just flowing nonstop. And that's different from the kind of flow state of like, I'm going to put on headphones and zone out from the world and I'm going to write for the next three hours. And they're, they're different kinds of flow states, but they both have the same sort of nature to them emotionally, I find, and the same sort of feeling, I think. Um, One of the things to that point that I have observed as well and wrote about is when we think about of who we want to be married to, for example, like, you know, our ideal spouse or, or even our ideal friend or our ideal business partner, we tend to make lists of the attributes that the other person, that we want the other person to possess, right? Maybe a sense of humor, good looks, whatever it is that they may be, right? And, all, and we all have some variation of the same list, right? The thing that I think we tend to never put on that list, and it's the most important, is how does that person make me feel when I'm with them? Do they inspire me to be the best person that I am? And I think that supersedes everything else that could be on a list like that. And so you're talking about that. I think choosing to be with people who inspire us to be our very best is it's at the top of my list now. And I hadn't really thought about that until rather recently. If you could, before we wrap up, I would love to just hear as you think about your book and like the, the kind of main messages that you want someone to take away from it, it, are there a couple of thoughts that you could share of like, I want someone to read this and walk away feeling X, motivated, inspired, confident? Like what, what, what's the goal besides just sharing wisdom? Like how do you want someone to feel when they read this? I would love for the reader of my book to walk away believing that their life and their world and every component of it could be better than it is and that the bigger world itself could be better than it is and that they have truly have the power to influence at the very least their world in ways that they might not fully appreciate i think that this world beats the shit out of us. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think and I think it's very common to feel worn down, uh, overwhelmed, disappointed, deflated. And uh, I hope my book is an antidote to all of those feelings. You mentioned Flow State and it made me think of an article from 2015 by someone named Sally Rooney that was in the Dublin Review about uh, being on a debate team and getting into a flow state. And it's one of the best essays I've ever read. And uh, so I was, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but um, something I would definitely recommend because I think this is a fascinating topic. It's, I feel, I mean, look, we could do entire episodes of the show about charisma and flow state. And there's, I, I just feel like these are topics that have not been researched or discussed enough or under maybe not discussed but understood enough and um i think charisma is so influential and contributes to to power and to politics and to financial success and like i just 
I can't quite put a finger on what creates charisma. And can, can I share a story with you? Please. So I was a young guy on Wall Street. I created CMBS and I was the largest lender. I found myself having built the largest lender in the history of the United States and I was 31 or so years old. And I found myself being somewhat of a celebrity in the business world and being asked to speak to large audiences and I had no public speaking experience. So I remember very well my first public speaking experience was in Boston and I had a room with about a thousand people and I literally wrote my speech word for word and I get to the um, podium and my speech is there and I'm the mic's there and I start reading my speech word for word and I had enough self-awareness to realize this is really not going very well. You know, this is, if I were sitting in the audience listening to this, I would want to walk out or run out or go to sleep or read the Torah or anything, right? And um, I I knew that I needed to improvise because I was, you know, this was terrible. So I crumpled up the paper and I threw it on the floor behind the podium so that I didn't have it to lean on. And I just said, fuck it, I'm going with, I'm just going to go for it here, right? And there was this uncomfortable moment that probably seemed to me like five minutes of silence while I tried to figure out what the hell I'm going to say. You know, I didn't have the speech and I didn't memorize it. And I just, I just let it go, you know, like I just let it go. And I, and I realized in reflection and the, and, and there was, and you could see all of a sudden people's eyes became alert instead of glossy and napping, Right. And I realized I had hit upon something in life from that experience, which I never forgot, which is it's all about bringing your authentic self. And, and that if you're, if you're asked to speak as I was about whatever the, the topic was, I know the topic. Like if I was sitting here talking to you about commercial real estate, I wouldn't need a speech. Okay. I wouldn't need to rehearse. I know it. I have domain expertise. Right. And you can, so you could wing it. You're just talking about Well, I'm an expert not. in it. So if I can speak to one person without any rehearsal or or notes, why can't I speak to a thousand or ten thousand people without any rehearsal or notes? And so that was a big aha moment for me. And then I kind of took it a step further and I said, you know, people are all coming to meet me to pitch their deals. Like I was the dispenser of money in real estate at a time when there were no others. And so everyone was beating their beating a path to my front door. So I was in meetings all day with people pitching me on this deal and that deal, and this deal and that deal. And I realized, I used to tell, I don't want to know why they're coming or who they are. I won't research them. I don't want to know about their deal. I want them sitting, looking me in the eye in my office, and I want to feel their energy, feel their passion or lack of, and react authentically to what I'm hearing for the first time in an authentic way. So I committed to living life in an improvisational state first through business, and then it just kind of carried on in life. I'll share two anecdotes quickly before we wrap. One is, um, I don't know if you saw that uh, Nike movie Air, the one about the- Everyone says movie. it's great. I haven't it's seen really it good. It's, it's a little cheesy, but it's really good, and it's very entertaining. And um, I'm kind of a sneakerhead, and so I, I really geeked out about it a lot. There's this whole scene about how Martin Luther King improved the I Have a Dream speech because he had written something else, and he had this speech that he was delivering, and it was not going over well, and so he improved it. I don't know if that's true or not, but supposedly, according to the movie, it is, which that's kind of cool. The second thing is... Uh, there's a regular listener of the show who um, is a psychoanalyst, and I once asked him, how often do you have the experience where you have a patient in your office, and they're speaking, and you zone out, and you start daydreaming or thinking about something else, and then you realize that you don't know what they're talking about, and you're, and you're sort of lost, and then it's... Uh, your turn to speak or say something and you don't even know what you're talking to them about. And he said, it only happens when a patient is not being honest. And if they're not being truthful, he finds it very hard to connect to their words. And usually if he feels himself zoning out 
when someone is speaking, it's a sign of something. And he can look at that as a signal that maybe this person is not being honest. And so that's why he's not connecting to what they're saying. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. And I try to notice that when I'm in conversation with someone, like, do I have a harder time connecting to someone's words if I feel like they're not being authentic and honest? And does that, can I use that as a signal to, to me, like in my own head during a conversation? That's That's interesting. Anyways, with that, why don't we wrap here? Ethan, um, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you let everyone know where can they find your book? How do they buy your book? How do they become great? Greatness is a choice. So how do people become great and, and get your book? Okay, thank you. My book is called Greatness is a Choice. Publisher Wiley uh, can be purchased on pre-order right now on Amazon and other distribution channels. Uh, delivery is scheduled for the very end of October. So if you pre-order now, you'll get it delivered to you then. Um, I feel really very proud of this book and I feel it's going to uh, be a positive influence on people's lives. And I think it's the kind of book that will be passed on, you know, where, uh, so I, I look, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about this today with you, Lee, and uh, share some of the things that are in the book and that are my thoughts, my experiences in life. And I, I really just wish everybody a wonderful life journey, you know, and I think that we all deserve that. Sounds great. Ethan, thanks so much for being here. And uh, thanks all for joining us. We'll be back with more soon.